How many of you guys missed one of the last five weeks? Raise your hand if you missed the last one out of the last five weeks. Oh, you brave souls. All right. Did you guys go back and listen to what you missed? You don't have to raise your hand about that because no one wants to be embarrassed here, but come on, guys. It's good stuff. I don't have to backtrack too far. I'm going to keep going, though. We talked about the idea of what true faith looks like, what the Bible calls approved faith, right? Hebrews 11 starts with a definition of faith and then says, this is, how, this is a list of the people who were approved by their faith before God. And then at the end, it says, this is a list of those who were approved by their faith. God is looking for approved faith. And how in America, we have what I'd call dead faith, or no faith, or imaginary faith, which is this idea that we can think a thought, think that it's true, and call that faith, which isn't faith. And I explained, we looked into James, the whole book of James, which is like an in-depth description of what faith is according to Scripture. Okay? So in this, we looked at that, we concluded that faith without works is dead faith or no faith. And I was thinking about that. It didn't get to one of the key points, but for you science nerds out there, how many of you guys are, would consider yourself science fans, science nerds, basic elementary school educated? Cool. You guys know what water is? You guys know the molecular... Uh, the molecular formula for water, H2O, okay, and the H stands for hydrogen, and the O stands for oxygen, and there's a little two up there that means you need two of these hydrogen molecules, right? So when you take two hydrogen molecules and one oxygen molecule and you bond them together, you now have water. And when you do that a bazillion times over, you have the ocean. But hydrogen is not water. And oxygen is not water. But they are both essential elements required for water to be a thing. And this is the biblical way that James is trying to show us what faith is. Right? Faith is not just hope or a mental assent to hope, right? And faith is not just works, just doing stuff. <clears throat> Either one on their own is not enough to be faith. Instead, faith is substance. It's evidence for what we hope for. Faith is H and O combined together in the right formula, making faith something new. So it's, it's not faith versus works. You're not saved by your works, and you're not saved by faith without works. Faith is believing with the corresponding works. They can't be separated. It's not a work to have faith in the same way that it's not apart from works to have faith. This is critical in understanding James and Paul and the Scriptures, and the only way to truly assess our own life in Christ, right? The Bible's clear that without faith, we cannot please God. 
Just think about that. We can't please God. And we talked about um, Mary and how she came to wash Jesus' feet with her tears, and she never said a word. And Jesus turns and says, your faith has saved you. But she didn't say a thing. She didn't confess anything with her mouth. She didn't tell Jesus about what she believed or didn't believe. All she did was demonstrate through a work what she believed. And those two things together, Jesus said, is saving faith. That's foundational to where we're going here. Because all those who come to God must first believe that he is. That's what it says. All those, all of us who want to know Christ, who are going to be saved, who are going to live this life of true faith, of approved faith, we must come to him first and believe that he is. And in order to do that, we have to know who he is in order to believe that. It's essential. You can't be saved apart from it. You can't walk with Christ apart from it. You can't know him apart from it. You cannot be approved apart from this thing. There's no pleasing him apart from faith. And this starts with knowing or believing that he is, and then that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I want you to just take a minute and grasp these two concepts. You first must believe that he is. And all the things we've talked about for the last few weeks about what that, word, what that means to believe, what this faith looks like, what the evidence of it looks like, what the, the outworking of this belief looks like, your life will demonstrate in very simple and plain demonstration whether you believe that he is. It'll also tell us what you believe he is or who you believe he is. C.S. Lewis once said the most important thing, the most important thought in your mind is who God is. Because everything else comes from there. So you've got to believe that he is. And that belief has to be correct. You can't be believing in golden calves and calling that Jesus and thinking that your belief is correct. You must believe that he is and then... You must genuinely believe in action works the expression of what you, you are believing that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And just think for a second what a life looks like or what you would expect a life to look like if they believed that God is who he is and rewards those who diligently seek him. Him. We're just going to do a 30-second window here. I want you to think about that. Imagine right now what the daily activities, the weekly activity, the expression, the attitudes of a person who fits those things would look like. Obviously, we're talking in an ideal world. It looks like something... Specific, pretty particular, 
And we got to be honest with ourselves to be able to test ourselves up against such truth and see where we stand and see if we are found in the faith at this time. Because God has called us to know Him. He's called us to know Him. Paul himself literally says, I am striving towards Christ to know Him for the very same reason that He has laid hold of me. Which is to have us. And Paul was striving to have Christ, to know Him intimately in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering and christ came down to do that in the same way this is an interesting thing aristotle way back he was this greek guy that everyone thought was so smart and he said some smart things and he had some good ideas but they were not founded in christ so therefore by definition he was not smart does that make sense from a christian's perspective The wisdom he had was not the wisdom of God. It was the wisdom of this world, which means he was a fool. When when compared up against what Scripture says is wisdom and knowledge and insight and discernment. But this is a man that was held up as incredibly wise and intelligent. And he probably had a good brain and was very, you know, philosophical in his thought process. And he concluded, in his definition of friendship, what it meant to truly know a person, his, his, his conclusion was that there could be no friendship with a God. He said there can, it's not possible because he believed that true friendship depended on mutual need. He understood friendship as happening when two people with mutual needs meet and can meet each other's needs and find that commonality or can find their needs met together in some way as what brought two people together in true friendship. And so his conclusion was because gods have no need, man could never be friends with a god. That gods would only use mankind for what they wanted And man would always look to the gods for what they needed. You see, that's the wisdom of this world, concluding, doing philosophy, using what they have access to, to come to a conclusion that, according to Scripture, is absolutely dumb. It is as wrong as wrong can be. C.S. Lewis came, and he said... True friendship is born at the moment when one man says to another, What? You too? His idea was that friendship is born when there's a shared commonality, a shared worldview, a shared perspective, a shared life experience that allowed you to know each other on a deeper level through experience. It's this idea that there's 10 people and you like all of them, but you don't have that deeper commonality with all of them, but you find one that you find out has its deeper commonality that draws you to them, and it develops into a friendship, right? So here's this story where Jesus, towards the end of his life, he's, he's giving his disciples his final instruction, and he says, 
No longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. So here's the divine calling the non-divine friends. It's God and man in friendship. It's because this God decided to leave his throne and to become man so that he could look at us and we could look at him and say, you too? You see, we have a God that came and did everything needed for us to know him, to really know him. Do you understand? To truly know him as a friend and not as an acquaintance, but as a deep brotherly love friend, a deep relationship so that he could say, we could go to him and say, you too have been rejected? You too have been betrayed? You too have suffered? You too have endured hardship? You too have weeped over loss? You too have struggled? Even to the point of bloodshed? To do what you don't want to do? You too have experienced great joy, happiness, laughter, relationship? You really do know me. I really can trust you to know me because you have endured and experienced all things just like me. Do you see that? This is what God did. He humbled himself and came to earth and took on the form of a man. And he suffered in the same way we suffer. Even to the point of death, not just death, a brutal death filled with rejection and betrayal and suffering and hardship and endurance. And it tells us that he did those things for the joy that was set before him. And if you look at Scripture, the only joy that was set before him that he didn't have before he came was friendship, intimate relationship with us. I want you to think about that. Do a, do a, you know, a validation test. Does that sound right? Does it feel right? When you think about what you know of Scripture, does that track? That the God of heaven and earth who created everything from scratch with just his words and created everything we see here, had created everything, he was sovereign, Lord over all things. Everything obeyed him except us. And so he came to fix that. And all of that was to know us. And so that we could know him. Do you understand? I want you to understand that. Everything we're talking about comes to this ultimate and final conclusion. Which is to know him. And then to make him known. This is what Jesus sums up all the law and the prophets as. He says, love me. And that word is agape in the Greek. To love me and to love your neighbor likewise. His command was that. I give you this new command. As you have been loved, 
love others. As you have been known, as you have been convinced of, as you have experienced from me, pass that on now and do that same to others. This is the goal. This is what faith allows. Faith allows this type of knowing, this type of growing and going from servant to friend. Understand, going from the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom to the love of the Lord being the fulfillment of it, the culmination of it, the height of it. So I want to talk about how we can know Him. This is the goal. We can know Him. It's so possible, and it's the highest good in our experiential life. When we do know Him, this is what we can, we can tell as the evidence of such a thing. That when you do know Him, you will want to make Him known. You will want to. Just think about you being in a village, a town, a hut, of all people that you live with, interact with. You care about all of them to varying different degrees. But there is a giant famine in the land and a drought. There's no food and there's no water. People are about to die. They're starving. They're dehydrating. They're, they're on the verge of death. <clears throat> and someone leads you to a, this place mile away. No one's seen. It's behind this, this place that no one's gone and looked. And there is just a never-ending abundant source of feast and food and endless pure and beautiful tasty water. And you are eating and tasting and drinking and you are being satisfied and this is like the greatest joy. You thought you were about to die. You thought your family was going to die and you just found this source. Your natural response to such a thing is going to be to go and tell people about this. This is, at this moment, a life-saving experience that you have had. And you now know how to bring others into the same life-saving experience. Unless you are like Satan incarnate, your instinct is going to be to go tell everyone else before they die about this never-ending source you found. I know that sounds plain and easy, but man, it's just such a clear picture of the truth. If you know Jesus, the clear and resounding evidence of such a thing is going to be to want to make him known. It's what transformation looks like. It's what practical demonstration and evidence looks like. Jesus said it like this, when a Pharisee who had him at dinner and didn't, didn't believe he was who he was, and therefore his actions demonstrated it, he didn't even give him the common courtesy in that day of washing his feet, offering him water to wash his hands, nothing. Treated him like a commoner and brought him in for questioning. And then this woman comes who had just had an encounter with Jesus, been delivered from demons and set free. She just encountered this source of life-giving freedom and deliverance. And all she can think to do is find a way to pay him back. So she takes everything she has, she sells it, she buys this beautiful fragrant 
perfume that cost her everything she had, she comes to give it to him, and she finds him mistreated and treated like a commoner. And she comes and she breaks it open and she's weeping over him, washing the animal dung and dirt and dust off his feet with her own tears, wiping her dry with her hair, and breaking this perfume bottle that she spent everything she had on in order to clean his feet. And Jesus discerns that in the thoughts of the Pharisees that have him there, they're thinking if this man truly was a man of God, he would know what type of woman was touching him and interacting with him. And he looks at him, and basically, long story short, he says, Simon, tell me this. Two people owe a debt. One owes a small debt. One owes a great debt. The person who they owe the debt to forgives them both. Who will love the man more? And he says, I suppose the one that's forgiven a greater debt. He says, exactly. And then he calls Simon out on his mistreatment. And he points out the beautiful treatment of Mary, who had been delivered. And he says, the one who has been forgiven little will love little. But the one who is forgiven much will love much. And he uses them as the demonstration. He wasn't saying there's some sliding scale here. He was saying, you who don't even believe that I am who I say I am... Your actions demonstrate that you don't believe that. This woman utterly believes it, and because of it, her saving faith has just been put on display through such a demonstration of her love. And Jesus makes this strong statement, to whom little is forgiven, they will love little. But to whom is forgiven much, they will love much. And I just thought this this statement should resound in us because to know him is to want to make him known. When we come face to face with who God is, his holiness, his blazing purity, his astounding majesty, there is an appropriate response from a human being. And that appropriate response happens when you become aware of how much you have been forgiven of. And part of the problem of the American gospel is that at least half the church is saved while believing they've only been forgiven a little. There is so much lack of awareness and self-righteousness and, and, and lack of what an encounter with Christ demands. That we have people who, who are Christians, following Christ, come to church every week, that are completely oblivious to the natural demand of what it means to have been forgiven of so much. And I think in genuine and all my heart believe it's that there's so many of us have not been put in touch with what we have been forgiven of. We have taken it for granted. Some of us have been raised in the church where it makes it quite easy to do that. Some of us have lived and listened to gospels that minimize what sin is and what its effect is and, and the damage of it and how desperate the, the response of one trapped in it would be. And I talked a little bit about this, like, that in Christ, 
are hidden all the riches of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. They're in Christ. Apart from Him, we don't have access to those things. Apart from Him, we don't have access to the understanding needed to recognize how much Christ has done for us. If we did that, our ability, our knowledge of Him would increase exponentially. We would come to this place and our faith, our living faith would be on display every day. We would be people living to make Him known. We would be people living to build up and establish the witness of Christ on the earth through His church as our first and highest priority daily. Our families would exist for that purpose. Our life would exist for that purpose. Our breath would exist for that purpose. And that leads us to this thing that I call the pursuit. I, as I look at Scripture, become more and more aware of how filthy I am before a living God apart from Him. How does that happen? How does that happen? Just from reading a book, reading some stories, reading some scripture. Well, in my experience, it makes me profoundly aware of a truth that the world is constantly trying to convince me of otherwise. I recognize that in TV shows, in movies, in conversations, in the news, in politics, all of it, there is a constant driving rhythm and beat and and repetition of me, myself, and I. I am good. I am okay. Everywhere. That's the message. I can be better. I can make myself better. I can self-improve. It's the number one selling piece of literature on the earth today is self-improvement literature. Yet in Christ are hidden all the the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And so this pursuit for me is this pursuit of knowing him. And I'm a practical person, so I say, okay, what does that look like if I broke that up into like action steps? What does it look like to pursue knowing him? There's a lot to it, but everything I can find starts in knowing and learning who he is. Finding out who he is and realizing that he's given us that in scripture. And so the pursuit starts in the scriptures. But not because the scriptures have some information that can combat Aristotle. So there's this powerful moment where Christ gives us the end to the means. When he's confronting the Pharisees for having been masters of the scriptures but not knowing him. And he points out, he says, you guys search the scriptures because you think in them you can find eternal life. And he says, but here's the thing. They testify of me. And I'm here. And you don't recognize me. You have missed the value of the scriptures. 
You've studied them your whole life, and you've missed the entire purpose. You've missed the entire end to the means. The Scriptures tell us who He is. That is the, the, the beginning point for this pursuit. I love this example in the day of Josiah in the, in the kingdom of, the, of Judah in the south, in the Old Testament. The kingdom in the south had been going down and down and down. Worse and worse, they'd have a couple hiccups where someone would turn to God in desperation and decide to put their faith in Him and God would respond immensely and immediately with deliverance and salvation and abundance. And right after this King Hezekiah came, this King Manasseh, and he doomed Israel, I mean Judah, to its death by bringing back all the idols and false gods and worshiping uh, other nations' gods. But then this King Josiah came up, and he was young. He was 8 years old, 12 years old. And then at 18 years old, he, he finally goes to battle. And, and during his time, there was this priest and prophet named Hilda who finds the law in the temple It was buried, the law, meaning the scriptures, the things that would make God known in his ways to the kings. And they bring that to Josiah and they let him know, hey, this is why what's happening is happening. There's no knowledge of God in the land. So the judgment of God is here and it's time to know him. And the law begins to be read every day. And Josiah hears the law and realizes how far away from God he has been and Israel has been. And so he immediately puts in massive reform across the nation. Radical reform to bring himself and the nation into full obedience to the scriptures. And God brings massive blessing on Israel and promises Josiah will be blessed. Like It's just an amazing story. And it's all because the scriptures had been rediscovered. Revival broke out. And revival broke out because the scriptures were rediscovered and people said we should live according to this. And just like uh, you expect food to grow when you plant it and water it, the Lord blessed it and revival came. And so here's this idea that, that if we search the scriptures, it will testify of Christ and we will know him and we will walk with him and we will be led by his spirit and see this. What does this all lead to? This idea of pouring over the scriptures until you see his face. I love that statement. I could quote it every time. I could preach on it every time. Think about what that means. To pour over the word until you see his face. There's no drawing of Christ's face in the scriptures, at least in any Bible I've found. So it must mean something different and something more significant. That by pouring over the scriptures in what pursuit of knowing him, what will emerge will be this intimate knowing of who God is. And that's the beauty of the story of Moses where it says this. I want you to get this. Moses said, show me your glory. He wanted to know God. And his brother and sister revolted against Moses. They were jealous and they said, why does Moses get to meet with God and speak for God? Aren't we older than him? And so God heard this and he called Miriam and Aaron, his brother and sister, Moses' brother and sister, to meet with him. And he said this to them. He said, don't you know that when I speak to my, my prophets, I speak to them in dreams and in visions? But it's not so with my servant Moses. He said, 
I speak to him face to face as a friend speaks to a friend. Think about that, guys. Think about that in light of what I just said. I'm wrapping it up right now into that statement. That God himself associated the idea of speaking face to face as speaking to a friend. This was God's goal. And Christ comes revealing the fullness of God on the earth. Meets with his people face to face. Gives them his word, his teachings, his instructions. And says, I want you to make disciples of everyone. And I want you to teach them everything I've taught you. And to obey it. And that's the scriptures. That's what we have. That's what the New Testament is. It's the teaching of Christ and the apostles teaching everyone else to obey those things. And Christ says, because you've done this, we are friends. And I want you to teach others to be my friend. To have that level of relationship. And so this quote ties this pursuit and that truth together for me. When John Lennox says, pour over the scriptures until you see his face. Until you know him. Until you know him. Until you realize on your own, through your own experience, that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And that the scriptures you're pouring over isn't to master the text. It's to have it testify of the one you are pursuing to know. But they are inseparable. I want to sum it up with this. Play this clip. Bella, you ready? I want you to read this. Watch this clip from The Chosen. I want you to experience what's happening here. I think it's a perfect example. And it captures with all your senses what I'm saying here. Out loud. As loud as you can, not as loud as you can, but loud enough for everyone to hear you. do you. miracles, right? You are a healer? Of more than just physical maladies, yes. Please. My daughter is dying. I'm so sorry. But come. Come and lay your hands on her, and she will live. You've never met me, yet you have this much faith that I can heal your daughter. you please take me to her Jess. thank you now what makes this scene so powerful is this knowing who Jairus was Jairus was a scribe and a tabernacle leader. 
basically a manager. His job, his job specifically was to protect and preserve the scrolls of Scripture. His job every day was to sit and go over these Scriptures to preserve them and to make copies for a temple, for each, for a different synagogue, so that the scrolls would be preserved and protected. He had never met Jesus, but his daughter was dying, and he had heard about Jesus, and he heard the testimonies that were going out, and he decided, I need to track this man down and find him because my daughter is dying, and he's the only one that can help. And the scene points out this beautiful thing where Jesus says, you don't know me at all. You've never met me. And you come and ask me to heal your daughter. And he has this moment with this little, I love the actor. He puts this subtle little smirk of knowing. And he looks at Jesus and says, I know you. And then Jesus responds by saying, let's go. Which is his typical response to anyone with true faith. How did he know him? Through the scriptures, through the scriptures that it was his job to be with all day, every day to preserve, Jairus knew Christ through the scriptures. And it led to a real life practical demonstration moment that changed his life forever. For us, we call that saving grace and forgiveness. Think about this. There's this guy named Job who at one point is confronted, thinks he knows God, but the end of his life, his testimony is this, I had heard rumors of you, but now I have seen, and I weep in sackcloth and ashes before you in repentance. This was a man who was already called righteous. He comes face to face with a God that he had just kind of known about, and he says, now I know, and my response is to repent and to serve how does he serve? Literally, his three friends who are persecuting him the whole time. God says, hey, you go and make sacrifice and go to Job and ask him to pray for you. And if he does, I'll take care of you. Job's job was then from there to minister the grace of God to his friends. There's this person named Zacchaeus who climbed a tree just to get sight of Jesus. And Jesus looked and said, man, that type of effort in pursuing me, wanting to see me, I want to meet with that guy. Met with him, called out Zacchaeus just by coming, just by being present. And Zacchaeus responded by repenting and giving the demonstration of repentance was he gave half of the riches he had back to all the people he had taken advantage of. He repented. He made it right. There's this person uh, in the scriptures named Isaiah. Had this powerful encounter with God. I want to read this one to you. And then we'll respond. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah is basically in the temple and he's seeing this massive demonstration of God's glory and he says, I saw him and the train of his robe filled the entire temple and literally supernatural monstrous beings were flying around declaring in the top of their lungs, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And when he saw this, the foundations of the, of the temple were shaken. And it was filled with smoke. And Isaiah's response 
to seeing God in this level of who he is. I want you to understand this. Isaiah was already a prophet of the Lord. He knew the scriptures. He had been called of God to declare the word of God. But now Isaiah was seeing him in a different light. And he sees him revealed in his glory. And what's his response? He says this, Woe is me, I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's it. That was his experience. He saw the Lord, the King of glory, and the comparison between his holiness and who Isaiah was became immediately obvious. And when he was confronted with who he was in comparison to who God is, his response was, I'm dead. I'm dead. I will die. I, I am undone. And he falls down and weeps and repents. And God responds to that faith and cleanses him and says, your sins have been atoned for. And then God just says, hey, people need to hear my message. And Isaiah's response after that encounter was this. Send me. Send me. To know him is to want to make him known, guys. Because when somebody has been forgiven of much, you love much. This is the, just the response. This is what faith looks like in action. And if we're not there, it is the, the grace of God to offer us the gift of repentance to come again and again until our mind has been set correctly on who He is and what He says. We have this gift. Do you understand? We have today to repent. We don't know if we have tomorrow. But we have today, and we have the gift of His Word and His revelation and this offer to know Him. And we have every means to get to that end made available to us and put in front of us. And He is simply saying that if you come to Me, you you must believe that I am and that I am the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Will we diligently seek Him? That's the challenge today. Will you take action steps to diligently seek Him? And I'm not talking about just decide in your mind you thought, that's a good idea, I should do it. I'm talking about accountability, steps to get to that place so that this love for God can begin to grow in your heart. Not unlike Sean's talking about the prayer blocks here. You have to diligently seek Him before you can expect to know Him and know His love in such a way that you fall in love. You have to see the treasure for what it is and be willing to diligently pursue it before you can enjoy the fruit of it. And God has graciously put in this offer and invitation out to us. Here is truth. Pursue it. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and understanding are hidden in Christ. Will you pursue it? Will you sell everything you have to buy that field that has the treasure in it? Because if you do... Here's the reward. You can know him. Let's stand up. Stand up right now, and I want you to assess. I asked you guys a few weeks ago 
if you would do the honest work of seeking out somebody that you trusted enough to be brutally honest with you, but somebody that you trusted walks with the Lord, that you look at their life and you say, they seem to have a, revel- a, a, a relationship and a knowledge of the Lord that has produced fruit in their life. I want their assessment of my life. I seem to look at their life and I can clearly see fruit of it. I want to know if when they look at my life, do they see fruit of that? This is how we take an honest pursuit. It's part of this diligent pursuit of knowing him. Why it's so hot about this? One, even if everyone in this room was a complete stranger, I would want you to know Christ. There is a never-ending abundant source of food and water right behind this mountain. Come, look. But even more so because we are a family together here. That God has brought together a community of believers that have been brought together for a shared purpose and a shared mission that we can look at each other and say, you too? And in that place, come to know Christ together. To know the height and depth and length and width of his love for us. And in doing that, make him known in such a powerful way. That so many others come and that the lamb will receive his reward. The joy for which he suffered. So let's pursue that. Right now, just begin to, begin to set your eyes and your heart on Christ and begin to pray. And by pray, I mean interact with God. Ask the Holy Spirit right now to begin to stir something new that will lead and produce this type of diligent pursuit. That something will shift. Whatever it is that needs to shift will shift. And it will open our eyes to this gift of repentance that we can become better aligned in what it means to know that He is Lord and trusted Master of our lives. Just do it right now. Just go after him. You and God, we're together alone right now in this moment. God, do what only you can do. Holy Spirit, move and allow the word to to have its way to, to plant and go deep and to produce change, God, that your bride would be who you deserve them to be. That you would wash us with your word and you would make us the purest bride. That we would be a good and right and accurate representation of who you are to those who need to see you. That we would know you in all the ways that you're able to say, you too. That we would step out in a trust that is born from this genuine faith that is the result of us knowing who you are and believing who you are. Thank you.